Um, so I've mentioned quite a few times, I grew up in Seattle, and uh, there's a lot of uh, mountains, volcanoes near Seattle, but there's one that's a little bit bigger than all the rest. Maybe you've heard of Mount Rainier. It's so significant that people in Seattle just refer to it as the mountain, the mountain. One of the radio stations, 103.6, is the mountain. And uh, when people talk about the weather, if it's clear, what they'll say is, it was so beautiful today, the mountain was out, by which they mean Mount Rainier. So when I was about four or five, my family decided we would take a family vacation day and we would drive down to the mountain and go see it. This was my very first time visiting the mountain. And it's about a two and a half hour drive to get down there, which to a four or five year old felt like most of the day. And um, it's Mount Rainier is part of a national park. So you enter the gate of the national park and you start making your way up the mountain, and then you get to a little village called Paradise. It sits at about 5,400 feet, um, which is about the same elevation as the highest point uh, on this island, and it is beautiful that you've, um, you've ascended enough elevation that you have arrived in a, in a completely different climatological zone. Uh, in the summertime, which is when most people go when we were there, uh, you're in Alpine Meadow. So there's a few kind of thin, beautiful, like uh, fairy tale story trees. And between them, it's just green. These little green shrubs, heather and plants covered in little purple and pink and red flowers. Uh, And the air is crisp. And uh, the main feature at Paradise is the Lodge, which is one of these beautiful, old-fashioned national park buildings made completely of logs. And if you picture like your typical... Uh, mountain chalet with like a, a steep roof. This is what it looks like except six times that big because it's like six stories and then all the windows of the rooms kind of peek out the side of this steep-sided roof. And uh, there's paths and trails around. And so as a four or five-year-old, I'm just transfixed. And of course, behind all this is the mountain. And it just sort of ascends up forever into the clouds. And so we started um, hiking and exploring around that I'm noticing the little marmots and uh, different animals scurrying around. And there's deer and elk and flowers and babbling mountain streams. And uh, after about 30 minutes of hiking, we reached this little ridge that kind of rises above the rest of the land. And it gives you this beautiful vantage point of the rest of the mountain. So the effect is you're on the mountain, but but you're just sort of looking at it. It's right there, very close. And we just sort of stood there. We took it in for a little while. My mom had packed a sandwich lunch with meat and cheese and mayonnaise and some apples. And so we sat there and ate and just sort of took in the mountain. And then my mom and dad said, well, all right, it's time to head back down. I was like, why are we heading back down? We're here to climb the mountain. It's right there. Why are we stopping? So in my mind, a journey to the mountain and us hiking clearly involved us hiking to the top. And uh, my parents tried to explain to me at length that um, this was not something that was going to be um, possible given the conditions of the mountain. See, so paradise is at um, 5,400 feet. The top of the mountain is at 14,400 feet. So... Uh, We've ascended about a third of the way up, and uh, the journey from, from where we were to the top is about another 24 hours of, of climbing involving ropes, 
crampons, ice axes, uh, in some cases stairs over crevasses. Um, it's it's a it's a people die doing this. <clears throat> and uh, but my four or five year old self was just transfixed and amazed by the mountain, but unable for some years after that to to fully grasp and even understand the immensity of what is Mount Rainier and all the conditions and what it would actually take to get to the top. To this day, I have not yet been to the top. Um, it's, it's a goal of mine, but I'm going to have to get in, in pretty good shape. Um, from people I know that, that have climbed Mount Rainier, that if you want to climb Mount Rainier, you should be in the sort of physical condition where you could put a 50 to 70 pound pack on and um, climb the stairway to heaven with your pack on twice in one day kind of what that's about. Anyway, uh, approaching this text in John 1, this is like the Mount Rainier of the New Testament. Um, and uh, there's, there's so much here that I could easily sort of disappear into the text for the next six months, which I don't want to do um, because I want to get to the rest of John. But I, so what I want to do is to pull out a, key, a few key themes from this passage that I think undergird um, the rest of the book of John. In this short 18 verses, John summarizes the entire gospel. All of his key words are already present, light, darkness, believe. Um, all of the key themes are present. And even more importantly than this text being the Mount Rainier of the New Testament, what's more important actually is that, that Jesus is, is the Mount Rainier of, of life. And that's really what this text speaks to, that he, he is the one that we come to and are amazed and overwhelmed by his glory, and yet even then have, have like a four or five-year-old, not really understood the rest of what it means to take a journey to the top. Begin by taking a look at the first couple verses. John writes, In the beginning was the word. In Greek, it's logos. In the beginning was the logos. So one of the things that John is doing is that he is connecting with the contemporary culture in which he's in. Because we know from writings of the day that logos is, um, if you quite call it a, a technical term, but it is a well-known phys- philosophical term from, from Greek thought, particularly from the Stoics uh, and from a tradition that was just beginning at this time called Gnosticism. And, and the idea is that in each one of our souls, there is something of, of, it's the form of reality. You think of Plato's understanding of the world, where there's, yes, there's triangles everywhere, sure, triangles, but, but then there's the ideal triangle. And um, it's actually this thought on which our system of math has, is based. If you remember back from high school, taking a, a geometry class, and you talk about triangles and, and how they all have 180 degrees in them, and you can talk about lines and how a line is in, infinitely long, and it's made of points, and you can talk about points and how it's an infinitesimally small space. Um, and what's easy to miss when you're immersed in the world of ge- um, geometry is that no one has ever seen a line. They don't exist. There's no such thing as a line. You have never in your life encountered something that has an infinitesimally small space and yet is a rain. And, and you can talk about a string, but as soon as we start talking about a string, we now have line plus matter and fur and, 
It's, you know, so in Plato's mind, there's sort of triangles and lines, but behind them, there's the ideal forms. And each one of us in our soul has a set of ideal forms, and they find their origin in the ultimate ideal form. It's the word. It's, it's the communication. It's the thought. There's the ultimate thought out there in the world. It's, it's sort of the, the beginning emanation of the universe, the center point. It's not necessarily personified, but it's, it's the origin of the universe. It's the logos. So John is connecting with his culture. He's saying, in the beginning was the logos. And anyone in Athens or Rome, uh, any of the Stoic philosophers, Plato would say, yes, that's, that's right. We understand you're talking about the center thought of the universe. But John is doing more than that. This is so John. He's multitasking, which is something that I cannot do. Because he's also touching base with his own Jewish roots. And in fact, I think this is the primary thought. In the beginning is how he begins. Does that sound familiar? He's alluding to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. And how does God make the heavens and the earth? He speaks them into existence with his words. He says, let there be light, and there's light. Let there be creatures. Let us make man in our image. And and every time, every day, he speaks. And then it says, and it was so. And so within Hebrew biblical thought, there's this growing tradition of, of more and more personifying God's speech. Psalm 36, 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. So it's the, the, in the sentence structure, we're treating the word of the Lord as... Um, as the subject, the acting subject. There's the Lord and there's the word of the Lord. In Isaiah, these terms come interchangeably. Sometimes it says, the Lord said to Isaiah. But then other times it'll say, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. And then Proverbs has an extended section on the creation, and it talks about wisdom. And wisdom also is personified as a person described as being with God in the beginning and that she contains all of God's knowledge. She's wisdom and that through her, the world was made and all of its things came into existence. And John is touching on that tradition. Having spent a lifetime living with Jesus and reflecting, he touches back not just on Greek culture, but on the own biblical tradition. He's saying, yes, in the beginning, God spoke. He spoke words. And the words made it happen. And the words, John says, I'm telling you, God's words are actually a person. That our own tradition was right to begin to personify God's words as being God and yet separate. And and yet him, but yet having a personality all to themselves. In the beginning was the word. God's communicative, expressive act. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. With God implies a a relationship. It implies that they're not the same. That they're they're present together, but distinguishable. 
Um, it also implies that this, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, that the, this, this Word concept that is with God is um, it's preexistent. Um, I, I, I don't think this was actually competitive, but um, John is kind of one-upping the other Gospels here. That, that Mark says, Mark begins, the first verse of Mark, Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Mark begins with the message about Jesus. Matthew begins with the genealogy showing you that Jesus descended from Abraham. So that Abraham is the father of the faith. And so not only do we have good news about Jesus, but he's actually been, he's part of this faith tradition. He's descended all the way back from Abraham. And John says, he was in the beginning. That um, there was never a time in which Jesus wasn't. Uh, this is the, um, certainly not the only place in the Bible where we see a very clear Trinitarian theology, but it's one of the clearest in the Gospels. That, um, that there's the Father and the Son, in this case personified in the Word, and that John is making a truth claim that Jesus himself was preexistent. That he's been around since before the beginning with the Father. And yet he also says the Word was God. So he's with God, but then he, he, he was God. And it's this delicate construction of words that sets up this, these two things that don't seem like they quite fit, and yet they're both true, that he was with God, and yet he, he was God. So what it communicates is that the Word shares the personality and function and characteristics of God himself. Um, now, if you've ever had a Jehovah's Witness knock on your door, um, and if you lived in Hawaii more than about two weeks, you, you have, um, they will, at some point, they will speak to you about this verse. And because they're going to speak to you about this verse, I'm going to speak to you about this verse. Uh, and what they're going to tell you is that there's, a, there's not a definite article before God, and so we Protestants have wrongly translated this. What the, the text literally says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That the word the, defining sort of the God, is not present in the Greek text, and that, that's true. Um, but I want you to know that in the way that Greek works, it's not necessary. Um, it's a construction that's used over and over and over and over in Greek. I can give you 17 examples from the New Testament where when the sentence is constructed this way, it's implied that we're not talking about gods generically. We're talking about the God. So there's no reason to suppose that, that John is saying, well, the word was, he was sort of, he was a God. There's many gods. Because um, the Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that, that Jesus is divine. Um, also, to... To do so flows completely against the meaning and the thrust and the content of this entire passage. That I think it's very difficult to read John 1, 1 through 18, and not come away with the impression that John is very, 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 very strongly telling you in 17 different ways that Jesus is God. And finally, if John had put a definite article there and said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was the God he actually would be saying something that's untrue. Given our Trinitarian theology, that Jesus isn't the God. He's part of the God. You can't, that, that God and Jesus are, they're, 
the same, but not coterminous. That, that God the Father and Jesus the Son are separate. And John is very careful about his language. See here the beginnings of our Trinitarian theology. The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So John states this creative force twice. Positively, he made everything, and negatively, everything that was made wasn't made in any other way other than by him. So we learn in this passage that um, the Jesus that John wants to tell us about, and, and this is what's so important, is we read through the rest of the gospel. Jesus, John wants to have in the back of your mind the thought that this Jesus who's going to meet with people, he's going to pray, he's going to suffer, he's going to heal people, he is the one who is with the Father from the beginning. He's preexistent, he's equal with God, he's separate from God, and he made everything. That God... In Genesis, it says God spoke things into being through his word, and we find out now an additional piece of information, that everything in Genesis is true, but now we also learn that that word actually is Jesus, that God said we should create Jesus, and Jesus said, I got it, and as the word, he made it happen. And this actually is a thought communicated throughout the New Testament. In Colossians 1, Paul writes this great hymn to Christ, and he said, He is the image and the exact representation of God, and everything was made through him and by him and for him. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author of Hebrews begins saying, Look, God has communicated to us in many ways in the past through prophets in various other ways. In this last days, he's communicated to us in Son, through whom also he created the universe. And so Jesus, meek and mild, who welcomes in the hurting and the lowly of the world, is the one who made heaven and earth itself. If we look down at verse 18, John communicates some of these same truths and thoughts at the end of this passage, which in literary thought is called an inclusio. It means this is important. He begins with Jesus, is preexistent and with the Father, and he ends with the same thought. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So again, no one has ever seen God. This is a well-worked Old Testament theme. That uh, We actually spoke here recently about how Moses got to see God, but even then he didn't really get to see God. He got to see the diminishing backside of God's glory. Isaiah says he saw the glory of Jesus in the temple with his robe around him. But then when he describes what he actually saw, he says I, he didn't see Jesus. He just saw the glory. And specifically what he saw was the hem of his robe. And even then, without even seeing God in his full glory, Moses, his hair turns white and he glows for weeks or months. Isaiah falls down, immediately wishes that he might die, and pleads out for mercy just because he saw the, the stitching on the bottom of Jesus' robe and the glory of Jesus that he has with the Father. That the, the idea in the Old Testament is no one has seen the full glory and radiance of God's nature and glory because you, you can't live through the experience. So now... John teaches that no one has ever seen God, 
but the only God who is at the Father's side. And by the way, the only God, that's actually not referring to the Father. It's referring to the Son. It's the, it's the one, it's the same phrase that's translated earlier, um, the one and only. That no one has ever seen God, but the one and only, the only God, the only begotten God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That Jesus himself, in coming and taking on flesh, makes that visible, which up till now has been invisible. And that's the shocking thing about this text for both Greek and Hebrew. We'll talk about this again, but in verse 14, John says, the word, this word that he's been talking about, this statement, the communication of God, his, his eternal companion, became flesh. And there's a number of words here that, that they could have chosen in Greek. There's uh, soma, which means body. The word became a body. Soma is sort of like, um, it's like concrete, problematic you. It's, it's, it's a body. And that's not the word that John chooses. He chooses sarks. Flesh. Meat. He became a piece of meat. Or as they say in the Lord of the Rings, the word of God became man flesh. He makes it as... Um, as, as concrete and tangible and visceral as he possibly can. That this eternal concept, the organizing principle of the universe, the word that God spoke before the beginning of time has now become a piece of meat in the world. And this is the point where our Greek philosophers uh, give up or, or wet their pants or just walk away. Because John has reeled them in. We're talking about ultimate reality, the meaning of everything. And in, in, in Greek thought, that would just, it just it flesh, that those are very different things. That eternal realities don't become flesh. And for many of the first century Jews struggled with, with similar thoughts, that of course a person isn't the father. You can't see him and, and, and live. And especially because this, this man was killed. That... Whatever we know about the Messiah, we know that he won't be one who's executed because he has God's full glory upon him. And yet this is precisely the claim that John makes for this Jesus about whom he's going to talk. That he's preexistent, that he created the world, and that he became a human being and entered into time and space in first century Palestine. John will quote Jesus later on in the same gospel. Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Likewise, Paul says in Colossians that he is the exact, exact representation and image of the Father. That we've been seeing pictures of God's nature for generations and thousands of years. We saw it in his relationship with Abraham and the covenant we saw it in the law. We saw it in, in King David that he's like a king. And, and, and those, those were all pretty good. But this is it. This is exactly it. When you see Jesus, you've seen the Father. Um, kind of loaded up all my really powerful Jesus quotes in one Sunday. In, uh, in the beginning on page four, Thoughts on the Gospel. Um, so now I'm going to have to find some more to get through the rest of the sermon series. But these, these are all pretty punchy. I like these. 
Christ was sustaining the entire universe as he suckled at his mother's breast. That's origin. He's uh, second century. Abraham Kuyper, he's a Dutch theologian um, from about 100 years ago. He said, there is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine. This belongs to me. Finally, the middle quote, in nature we see God as it were like the sun in a picture and the law as the sun in a cloud. In Christ, we see him in his beams, his being the brightness of his glory and the exact image of his person. So this is John's introduction to his gospel. Before he even gets going, he's laying a groundwork for who Jesus is. And uh, I wanted to share a few thoughts about um, what I think this means for us. Here's the first one. Uh, I'm borrowing this from Leslie Newbegin, with whom my high school students are now quite familiar. Um, Leslie Newbegin points out that, um, that if what John claims is true here, and you, can, and you can doubt it. But if it is true, then you can't have any philosophical foundation or knowledge of the world of which this isn't the cornerstone. That, that John, right here in verses 1 and 2, is making the most massive, exclusive truth claim you possibly can make. That the organizing principle of the universe itself, God words, God's words became a person and they entered into our reality and they spoke. And if that's true, all of our, our speculation, our reasoning must in a sense stop and become listening. There's, a, um, there's an illustration um, that commonly floats around in religious and philosophical circles, the illustration of the elephant that there's um, four or five blind men and they stumble into a room and they stumble around. In the room is an elephant and no one can see the elephant. But one of them grabs onto the trunk. Another one stumbles into a leg. One stumbles into the side. Somebody grabs a tail and they all begin saying, what is it, what is it that we have all found? And the guy holding the trunk says, it's like a hose. I think we found a hose. And another guy, he's got his arms wrapped around the leg and he says, it seems very much like a tree. It's sort of tall and pillar-like. And another guy says, he's pressing against the side, he says, it seems very much like a wall. And so the illustration goes that, um, that each one of them is telling something true. And yet none can see the whole picture because in a state of blindness, no one can see the entire truth. And so are the world religions, that we have all stumbled around seeking if we might touch or find a piece of God. And some have said, he's like Jesus. Others have said, he's like the Buddha who found great rest. And others say, he's like Muhammad who told us about Allah, who told us how we could live pleasing lives. And yet they have all touched on a piece of the truth. And my friends, that illustration actually is true. That in our finite human nature, there's no way to know. That we um, feel around in the dark, and we figure out the best we can, and we run some experiments, and we process what we've experienced in our own hearts and other hearts, and there's no way for any of us to have any knowledge superiority over anyone else. Postmodernism is right. 
about that. Humility is one of the fundamentally most important things in in the search for knowledge to know that we can't know ultimately. Unless. Unless the elephant speaks and says, will you guys please stop touching me? I'm an elephant. In which case we have two options. We either say, uh, I don't know what that was about. This is clearly not an elephant. And uh, we really have no way of verifying these truth claims. There's no way for any of us to run an experiment and find out, is this an elephant or not? Um, but the claim has been made. And if you receive it, then the type of knowledge that comes from speculation, where, where we are in control of the knowledge, where we run experiments and do searches and come to conclusions that are our property, are in our control because we found them, that kind of knowledge stops the kind of knowledge that comes from personal relationships begins where we stop speaking and speculating and we give a chance for the elephant to speak to us. And that kind of knowledge is not in our control because it's in the control of of the elephant. He gets to choose whether or not he will reveal himself and how much that he, he will reveal himself and there are things that he may not choose to share. It's the same that if we are all in here and, we, um, and we're speaking about Todd, well, what is his nature and what are his motives and what do we think? And we can have a great conversation about that. But when he walks into the room, the type of speaking that we do must stop because he's here and has the ability to speak for himself. And this is the claim that John has made, that the organizing principle of the universe entered and he spoke. And so now must, uh, we either receive those words as an accurate testimony or reject them, but either way, there's, there's a claim that's been made here that there is an outside objective knowledge that has spoken into our reality. And if believed, all other knowledge must reorient around the truth of the one who came from outside and spoke, the truth from the one and only who is in God's presence and has made him known. The word there is actually exegete. That Jesus has exegeted the Father. He's explained him and made him clear. And if that's true, secondly, Jesus gets the right to speak into our reality. It's his stuff. We're all his stuff. It's kind of his idea. It radically reorients everything. We can, we can have great discussions about whether you can or can't own beachfront, because in Hawaii you can't. I think that's great. In other places you can. But, but if the word was, in God, was with God in the beginning and became flesh and spoke, that means that it's all his stuff anyway. And um, things like property become secondary concerns. Now, thankfully, he's affirmed our right to own property, but we believe that because he said so. Or in a more Christian context, you can think about it this way. Why do we believe in the Bible? What is our, our basis for believing that these words are trustworthy and that we should continue to follow them, especially the Old Testament? It's because Jesus said that we should. That's the reason why we believe in the Bible. If Jesus had come and said, I am the one and only from the Father, I am speaking to you truth, I am explaining him to you, and we believed him, and he said, you don't need to worry about the Old Testament anymore, I would quickly tear it out of my Bible and throw it away. 
that the ultimate foundation now of all of our trustworthy epistemology and knowledge is, is the foundation of the knowledge of the one who came from above and spoke. And so, yes, as Christians, is it arrogant and blinkered for us to claim that we know the only way? Yes, it is. But, but we do so only because he himself has said so. We maintain this position of humility that it's not really because we're awesome or we figured it out. It's just because Jesus shared it with us. And you should come too. Listen to this. That it's a, a powerful, overwhelming truth claim, but it's actually not one that you are making. You're just sharing the one that Jesus made for himself. Finally, this. Um, Annie Dillard. I don't know if you guys have ever read Annie Dillard. She's an author. Um, poetical author who loves to draw illustrations from life and faith and juxtapose them side by side. It's, um, it's really refreshing reading if you've sort of been stuck in an academic environment for a while. And she wrote a book called Journey to the Pole. And she juxtaposes throughout the book stories of explorers trying to reach the North and the South Pole with illustrations and images of people entering into church on Sunday morning. going back and forth between the two. And one of the primary things that she draws out about the explorers is that many of them, most of what she tells about them is how they all died. And in every case, it was, as she says, because they were not sufficiently aware of conditions. That you just can't go out there on the polar ice cap and trudge across for a couple miles wearing felt and rubber boots and expect to survive. And then she says, in my experience, most Christians, as they enter into worship, are not sufficiently aware of conditions and the immensity of what we are entering into. First of all, we are in his creation. This is all his stuff. Everything, the Hawaiian Islands, you know, it's his idea. And this, in part, is where we get our, our idea, our thought, our mission as a church, that we want to continue to plant churches and reach out in this place. And whether you're here for a month or 50 years, we encourage you to be part of that. Because, and here's why. Because this place matters. That ministry never takes place in, in the abstract world of thoughts or ideas. That because Jesus spoke and it was and he made it, it's all his stuff. And so every place, whether here or Bangladesh or New Orleans, it's his stuff. And it bears us well to pay attention to the conditions in which he has placed us today, where we eat and sleep and wake up and journey between the living room and the kitchen and watch movies and have our food and meet with friends. It's the conditions in which he has placed us. It's his stuff. And secondly, he didn't just sort of send messages from afar. He entered it. He became flesh. And what that should communicate to us and... um, Sandy actually was mentioning this in Sunday school, how the theology of the rapture really affects your view of reality. And I'm going to go ahead and say, I think a strong view of the rapture communicates that the world is effectively trash. And so we're all sort of here for a while, and we're in the lifeboat, and our main function is to get in the lifeboat, and maybe we can get a couple other people in the lifeboat before we all get out of here and it burns down. And uh, not only do I not find sufficient basis for that viewpoint in the scriptures, I think it undermines 
the value of Jesus' stuff. That that's fundamentally not the way that he's done redemption. He's done it by coming flesh. He's became part of the creation that he made alongside us, and he's here, you will see in John, on a mission to redeem and reclaim all of this stuff for himself. So not just to pay attention to the creation, but to know that he has an agenda for the creation, for we ourselves in the places where we live and work in communities and cultures of every kind. He's here to redeem it, not to throw it away. And finally, when we enter into church, into worship, it says in Hebrews that we enter into the presence of the angels and of the saints who have gone before us. John, Abraham, and all the saints who have lived between here and there, and most of all, in Jesus' presence himself. And of understanding that Jesus is the one from above, the eternal one from the Father who made heaven and earth, generates in us a purely intellectual response. We have not understood that everyone who's met him from Moses to Isaiah and Jeremiah to John himself. Like John is the one who walked with Jesus, who reclined at his breast at the Last Supper. He refers to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. If anyone ever had good reason to be comfortable in Jesus' presence, it was John. And both in Revelation 1 and in Revelation 19, when John turns around and sees Jesus standing behind him, he immediately falls down as though dead. And Jesus has to touch him on the shoulder and say, it's okay, it's okay. That these are the conditions that we enter into and to worship, that we are coming into the space, the authority of the one who was from the beginning, who was and who is and who is to come, who is dead and now is alive forevermore. I invite you to let that reality, that knowledge, that intensity transform the way you think of Jesus in his presence and worship and in your prayers. Um, looks like the clock up there died. For a while I've been like, man, I feel like I've been going a long time, but I guess I haven't anyway. My, my apologies. <laughs> Don't I'll ever let your clock die halfway through the service. Um, let me pray and we can sing one last hymn to this Jesus.